It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, we advise extra caution for our listeners. Myra Hindley's crimes against children and young teenagers were particularly disturbing. As a warning, this episode includes descriptions and discussions of rape, sadism, pedophilia, child abuse, and child murder. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of a teenage girl. You've asked your parents for permission to go to a dance, but they've refused because there's no one to go with you. So, doing what many teenage girls have done before you, you sneak out to go on your own. The dance is, after all, only a few blocks away. You put on your best powder blue dress and high heels and set off down the neighborhood street you've walked a thousand times before. And then you meet a friend of a friend on the way. She asks you to help her look for something she's lost. Of course you'll help, you say. You get into her car, unaware that a wolf in sheep's clothing is taking you to your own slaughter. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today, we'll take a look at Myra Hindley, a sadistic child killer from Manchester, England, who lured five children to their deaths in the 1960s. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Today, we'll explore the life of Myra Hindley, who lured five children and teenagers to their brutal deaths at the hands of her boyfriend, Ian Brady. Hindley always claimed that her role was to abduct the children and that she didn't take part in the killings or sex attacks. Once in jail, she said boyfriend Ian Brady had beaten and blackmailed her, threatening to kill her relatives if she didn't help him. Some of their victims were beaten, tortured and abused before being killed and buried on a desolate moor in northwestern England. This week, we'll take a look at four child murders for which Myra Hindley is responsible. Next week, we'll explore the final murder that brought Myra Hindley and Ian Brady's Manchester murder spree to a halt, as well as the terrible and tragic legacy they left in their wake. The stories we've all heard about serial killers usually paint them as men who stalk, capture, and kill their victims alone. But what about those killers who have help? Solo serial killers may get much of the notoriety, but serial killers who work in pairs have made their terrible mark throughout history, shocking the world both with the severity of their crimes 
and with the fact that these murderers were able to convince another person to help them kill. Most of us can't even convince our significant others to go jogging with us. It's even more difficult to imagine the manipulative power someone has to have to convince another person to help them kill a child. And yet, that's exactly what Ian Brady and Myra Hindley did. This story is so notorious that Myra Hindley is still considered the most evil woman in the United Kingdom. But she didn't start out that way. No, she didn't. Myra Hindley was born on July 23, 1942, in Manchester, England, to an impoverished family. Myra's father was an alcoholic. Her mother was one of many dissatisfied young women who married into the working class only to discover that she'd spend the rest of her life trapped there. Her early years probably explain a lot about the woman Myra would eventually grow up to be. Her parents beat her regularly as an infant. So regularly, in fact, that neighbors knew to warn her grandmother when it was happening. When Myra's younger sister Maureen was born in 1946, Myra's grandmother convinced their parents to give two-year-old Myra to her to raise. Under her grandmother's care, Myra developed a love for learning and escapist literature. She would tell anyone who asked that she wanted to find her own adventure someday. She became a great swimmer and a straight-A student. Despite turning Myra over to her grandmother's care, her parents were still active in her life. They were determined to ensure Myra knew how to look after herself, by any means necessary. To her father, that meant knowing how to fight. In 1950, when she was eight years old, Myra won her first fight against a neighborhood boy. She blacked his eye and broke his teeth. Despite that incident, Myra became known in her Manchester neighborhood as a trustworthy and popular babysitter. Parents happily left their children with her. From 1950 to 1957, when Myra turned 15, she lived a comfortable life as a good student, trusted babysitter, and friendly neighborhood face. And then tragedy struck. In 1957, Myra lost one of her closest friends in a freak drowning accident. 13-year-old Michael Higgins invited Myra to go with him to swim at a local reservoir. When she was unable to go, he went alone. And he never came home. The death struck Myra hard. Her grades began to decline at school. In her journal, she blamed herself for his death. She was known in her school and neighborhood as a strong swimmer. If she had gone with him, perhaps he would still be alive. Following Michael's death, Myra turned to religion. In November 1958, 16-year-old Myra received her first Catholic communion. But religion couldn't resurrect her failing grades, and she eventually dropped out of school entirely. By her 17th birthday, Myra had found work as a typist and began experimenting with her physical appearance. She dyed her dark hair platinum blonde. She began dating and even became engaged to a young man but the engagement didn't last very long. The boy, she said, was heading straight down the road she had seen her parents and friends struggle along her entire life. She didn't want a working-class life of struggle. Marriage and parenthood seemed like a trap, too. She still wanted the adventure she dreamed of as a girl. Before we dig into Myra's psychology, just a quick disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. 
According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, Myra's responses to her friend's death, dropping out of school, turning to religion, her self-blame, changes in her appearance, impulsive decision-making, and rejection of social norms are all known today to be common and treatable responses to trauma. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health, these symptoms are also indicative of a type of post-traumatic stress disorder that can occur following the death of a loved one. However, in the 1960s, Myra lacked access to mental health services that could have helped her find healthy outlets for her feelings of guilt and PTSD in response to her friend's drowning. On top of that, she couldn't turn to her own parents for help working out her feelings, and we don't know if she ever approached her grandmother for help. In fact, experiencing childhood trauma, such as being beaten as an infant, only increases a person's risk of experiencing PTSD. The support structure was not in place to help Myra cope with her friend's death in a healthy way. So instead, Myra relied on coping mechanisms, such as turning to religion and dropping out of school, to help her get through. In January 1961, 19-year-old Myra landed a typist position with a chemical distribution company. On her very first day, her new boss introduced her to a young man who would send her life spiraling into darkness. 23-year-old Ian Brady wasn't like the other men Myra knew. He was serious and studious. He read books instead of spending every night out at the pub. He talked about exotic locations neither of them had ever visited. They had a lot in common as well. Ian had been born in Glasgow, Scotland, to a single mother who eventually gave him to another couple to raise, much in the same way Myra had been given to her grandmother. Ian was also very intelligent, and it set him apart from his peers from a young age. Teachers would describe him as whip-smart and terribly lazy. Except when it came to crime. He'd gone before a judge three times for breaking and entering before his 17th birthday. As a condition of his release for his third court appearance, Ian was sent to live with his mother and her new husband in Manchester. But he wasn't there for long before an event happened that would shape him forever. While Ian was working at a local market, a man had asked him to help him load goods into his car. Whether Ian knew the goods were stolen or not, we don't know. But we do know that when police arrested the man for theft, they also arrested Ian as an accomplice. Ian was sentenced to two years in England's equivalent of Juvenile Hall. Colin Wilson, Ian Brady's prison pen pal, said Ian deeply resented what he saw as an unfair sentence passed down by upper classes that only saw him for the class he had been born into. This punishment sparked a festering hatred in him. He wanted to make society pay for the unjust hand he felt he had been dealt in life. And he wanted to do it so that his name would ring immortal after his death. Research published in Psychology suggests that most serial killers experience extreme moments of humiliation and embarrassment while they're growing up, and that contributes to their desire to kill. But Ian didn't just kill. As we'll explore later, he also violently sexually assaulted his victims. Research by the Howard League for Penal Reform in England has shown that rape in prison is seriously underreported and underpunished in England, as it is in the United States. Still, using statistics from the case that are reported, between 1 and 4 percent of minors in their version of Juvenile Hall are raped while incarcerated. 
Though we don't know whether Ian was sexually assaulted while incarcerated, we do know that he himself pointed to this period of his life as the moment that changed him forever. It's possible that experiencing or witnessing rape in prison is what set him on the course to perpetrating sexual violence of his own. While in juvenile hall, Ian studied bookkeeping and picked up an obsessive hobby of reading about Hitler and Nazism. His literary appetites grew to include works by the Marquis de Sade, from whom we get the words sadist and sadism. He also made plans to travel and to fund that travel with petty crimes. After his release, he joined a gang of car thieves and used his pay from those crimes to travel around the area. Eventually, however, he returned to Manchester and took up a position working in the same office as Myra. It was lust at first sight for Myra, though she might have called it love. After meeting Ian in January of 1961, she wrote often of him in her journals, noting an instant attraction and pull toward him that drove her to seek his attention for months afterwards. Ian's interest in Myra at the time was lukewarm at best. For almost a year, Myra pined for him, doing anything and everything she could think of to try and grab his attention. Eventually, it worked. Ian started to wonder just how useful and fun it could be to have someone around who was so willing to please him. He began to ask himself, can I get Myra Hindley to do anything for me? The answer to that question turned out to be a resounding yes. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now back to the story. In 1961, Myra Hindley was smitten with her co-worker, Ian Brady. She was so enamored with him that she began to do any and everything to get his attention. She wanted to please him so badly, he could get her to do or change almost anything about herself that he wanted. Curiously, research published in the British Journal of Medical Psychology suggests that this kind of all-consuming submissiveness can affect how a person responds to trauma. Submissives often reinvent themselves like Myra did following her friend's drowning. They're also more likely to feel survivor's guilt, like Myra did after her friend died. And that guilt often compels them to seek out a group to belong to with reckless aggression. And once they find a group to which they would like to belong, they become self-sacrificing, doing whatever they can for the group, even at their own expense and the expense of others. More than that, however, submissiveness is often a way those with survivor's guilt work through that guilt, by allowing themselves to be punished. In Myra's case, Ian's indifference to her was a sort of punishment. On December 22, 1962, Ian took Myra to see the film Judgment at Nuremberg, starring Spencer Tracy and Burt Lancaster. The film examines the trial of four Nazi officers following World War II. Ian must have felt comfortable enough with her reaction to the choice of film to take her out again. Over the next few weeks, Ian gave Myra Hitler's Mein Kampf to read and introduced her to the novels of the Marquis de Sade. While most people would see these book recommendations as massive red flags, Myra seemed thrilled that Ian had finally taken an interest in her and let her into his private world. She read the books thoroughly and surprised him with her attention to detail. Ian reveled in the control he had over her. He would often tell her to do and say things simply to see if she would. She always did. Soon, the pair were inseparable. 
Their relationship escalated dramatically in the following months. In early 1963, 20-year-old Myra slept with Ian Brady for the first time. Ian tied her to the bed, where he bit and beat her. In writing about the experience in her journal, Myra focused on how much it pleased him, not on her own response to it. It wasn't just her first time with him. It was her first sexual experience ever. Early stage research conducted by the University of Tennessee found that our first times leave a lasting impression that can affect our relationship with sex for the rest of our lives. Over time, we unconsciously seek out sexual experiences that echo our first, no matter if the experience was positive or negative. In the following weeks, Myra gave Ian permission to have anal sex with her, and in her journal later, she would note that this pleased him immensely, which only encouraged her more. At times, Ian would also give Myra the reins, allowing her to experiment with him, becoming the dominant partner, and even inserting objects into him. The National Coalition of Sexual Freedom has explicitly stated that if it's not consensual, then it's not just rough sex, it's abuse. In Myra's case, Ian had already tied up and beaten her without her express consent. He might have given her control periodically to create the illusion that the violence he had already done to her was not an abuse perpetrated by only one person, but something done by equally consenting adults. Borrowing from his beloved Marquis de Sade, who believed in a very free view of violent sexuality, Ian often told Myra that rape and murder were not wrong. As usual, Myra seems to have accepted his point of view without question. By February of 1963, just two months after they began dating, Ian had begun taking nude pictures of Myra and of them having sex together. At Ian's insistence, Myra stopped attending church and instead joined him as he dove deeper into Nazi ideology and the belief that there would be another war between the races. In Nazism, race has less to do with the color of a person's skin and more to do with a clearly defined cultural group. British people are a race the same way Slavs and Jews are. And many who follow the Nazi ideology subscribe to a belief that each race has specific characteristics that set them apart from all others, traits that make them inferior or superior to other races. As you can imagine, Nazis usually imagined themselves as superior. Hitler's Nazism exercised the belief that the strong willed what they desired into being, and that thinking was for the weak. This essentially condoned and downright encouraged blind obedience and proving loyalty through action. I say jump, you ask how high. Imagine how appealing that might have sounded to Myra, who had already submitted herself to Ian's every desire. Soon, she had picked up Ian's prejudices and xenophobia, too. She began describing immigrants as filthy morons. The British breeders Myra wanted to distance herself from were sheep. In fact, almost everyone else around them was an idiot, trapped in their lives like rats in a cage. The only place untainted by the so-called filth that surrounded them day after day was the desolate and eerie Saddleworth Moors, just outside Manchester, where they took increasingly frequent trips. By June of 1963, 20-year-old Myra had invited Ian to move into the house she shared with her grandmother. Why her grandmother consented to this is unknown. Perhaps this was the only way she could keep an eye on Myra. 
Perhaps she simply didn't know about his delinquent past or tastes in subversive literature. Ian's appetites for violence only grew after they moved in together. A few days after Ian moved in, Myra awoke with bite marks all over her. Ian told her that he had drugged her with her grandmother's pills and raped her during the night. In what is probably the scariest response to that sort of news ever, Myra noted in her diary, quote, He is cruel and selfish, and I love him. End quote. The psychology around masochism is deeply complex, and it would probably take the whole length of this podcast to explain it in full detail. But think of it this way. In a normal, healthy relationship, you might reinforce your partner's positive behaviors while trying to train them out of their negative behaviors. However, in a dominant, submissive relationship like Ian and Myra's, they satisfy each other's needs so fully that they reinforce all behaviors, good or bad. Research from McGill University suggests that dominant coerciveness and cruelty is deadly to a healthy relationship. In the case where one partner wants to be hurt and where they don't want to make any decisions, cruelty and dominance from a partner can make a submissive person even more submissive. This seems to have happened to Myra throughout her relationship with Ian. By the end of June 1963, 25-year-old Ian told Myra of his plans to rob a bank. He asked her to be his getaway driver, even though she had never driven a car before. A few driving lessons and three exams later, Myra surprised him with her license. She bought a van with money she had saved and joined a hunting club at his request so she could purchase two rifles for them. But the robbery never came to be. Perhaps because that had never been Ian's true motivation anyway. He soon told Myra of his darker fantasies to kill and asked her to help him do it. On July 12, 1963, Ian turned to Myra and told her the time had finally come to carry out what he called his perfect murder. Myra drove the van she'd bought around her neighborhood while Ian tailed her on his small motorcycle. He had told her that when he saw someone he liked, he would flash his lights, signaling Myra to lure the person in. Eventually, Ian flashed his lights. Myra turned to see seven-year-old Marie Ruck walking down the sidewalk toward her. Moments passed like hours as Marie walked by. Ian waited for Myra to roll down her window and offer the little girl a lift, but she never did. In a fury, Ian waited until Marie was around the corner, then sped toward the van on his bike. He knocked on the window and demanded to know why Myra hadn't grabbed the girl. Myra said she knew her. Marie Ruck was a neighbor of her mother. She also told Ian there'd be less fuss if they took a teenager instead of a younger child. Myra pulled the van out again and continued circling the neighborhood. By a little past 8 p.m., Ian had spotted his second choice. He flashed his lights at Myra. Up ahead, Myra could see a 16-year-old girl in a powder blue dress and white high heels making her way down the street and she recognized her, too. It was Pauline Reed, one of Myra's sister's friends. She was on her way to a party when Myra got out of her van and approached her, worry creasing her brow. Pauline recognized Myra and asked her if she was okay. She told Pauline that she had lost an expensive glove while out at Saddleworth Moor. Myra asked Pauline to help her look for it, but then apologized for keeping Pauline from wherever she was going. 
Pauline smiled and waved away Myra's embarrassment. Of course, she would help Myra look for the glove. Pauline hopped into Myra's van, and away they drove towards Saddleworth Moor. Ian followed behind. When they arrived at the moor, Ian sped up on his bike, and Myra introduced him to Pauline, saying that he was there to help them look for the glove. Myra told Ian and Pauline to go ahead. She would follow a moment after. According to Myra, half an hour later, Ian returned alone and led her to Pauline, who was still clinging to life despite horrific injuries. Ian had beaten, raped, and stabbed her and tried to slit her throat twice. Her coat had been shoved into the four-inch incision across her voice box. The cut was so deep, in fact, that it had entirely severed her spinal cord. Ian later told police that Myra had not only been present when all of this occurred, but that she had joined him in raping and assaulting Pauline. Like most things, the truth probably lies somewhere in the twisted, terrible middle of these two conflicting accounts. It's unclear whether Pauline was still alive when Ian and Myra dug a shallow grave and rolled her inside. They buried her and drove home. As Myra drove into her neighborhood, she spotted Pauline's family already combing the streets looking for her. For weeks after Pauline's disappearance, Myra went out of her way to say hello to Pauline's mother and express her hope that Pauline would be found soon. Ian would later tell reporters that Myra enjoyed talking to Pauline's mother, knowing Pauline was never coming home. Eleven days after Pauline disappeared, on July 23, 1963, Myra and Ian celebrated Myra's 21st birthday. After the unique bonding experience of murdering Pauline, Myra believed their relationship would last a lifetime. But Ian was already tiring of her. He gave her an expensive gold watch for her birthday, but apart from that, he saw her less and less frequently in the weeks after Pauline's murder. Instead, he began hanging around gay bars and cruising for hookups with men as he drove around Manchester on his motorbike. We can't know with complete accuracy whether or not Ian Brady was bisexual or gay, or if he was simply sadistic regardless of the gender of his sex partner. As we'll see later on, when it came to raping and murdering children, he didn't exhibit a preference for either boys or girls. We will note, though, that Ian's sexual mentor, the Marquis de Sade, was notorious for seeking out any and every sexual experience he could find. Consensual, non-consensual, gay, straight, or orgy, nothing was too exotic or exciting for him. It may simply be that Ian was following in his mentor's footsteps by experimenting with sexual partners of the same gender. Around the same time, almost to punish Ian for turning away, Myra began an affair with Norman Sutton, a married police officer. It was as if she was telling Ian that she could reveal their crimes to Sutton at any moment. This wouldn't be the first or last time Myra attempted to manipulate her way into or out of a relationship. Or the last time she would be so successful at manipulating others to get what she wanted. In either case, Myra's affair worked exactly to plan. In November of 1963, Ian returned to Myra's grandmother's house with a copy of 24 Hours from Tulsa. While they listened, he confessed to Myra that his bloodlust was rising again. He wanted her to help him pull off his next murder. After this, we'll hear Myra's response. Now back to the story. 
After murdering teenager Pauline Reed in July 1963, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady's romance cooled considerably until Ian Brady was ready to kill again. Myra was prepared this time. She rented a car and wrapped the trunk with plastic for easy cleanup. She gathered lengths of rope, a shovel, and a serrated knife, and found a dark wig to cover her bleached blonde hair. On November 23, 1963, they went hunting for a victim in the nearby area of Ashton Underline by a market both of them knew well. One little boy stood out to Ian. 12-year-old John Kilbride was loitering in the market, hoping to chance into small jobs, the same as Ian had once done. Ian signaled to Myra. This would be their next target. Myra asked John to help her carry boxes to her car. When she was done, she offered him a ride home. When John jumped into the front passenger seat, he didn't see Ian hidden in the back. Myra locked the doors and drove to Saddleworth Moors. As Myra later told police, Ian took John from the car and disappeared over a hill. Half an hour later, Ian returned for Myra. When he showed her John's body, John's trousers were off and his clothing was pulled up tightly over his chest. According to Myra, Ian told her that he had raped the boy and then tried to use Myra's serrated knife to kill him. When that failed, he used a length of the cord Myra had brought and strangled him. Ian, however, would later tell police that Myra pinned John's arms while Ian raped him and then pinned John's legs as Ian strangled him. The victim's families will never know the truth about what happened to their children, and neither will we. Either way, a portion of the blame falls on Myra's shoulders. Together, Ian and Myra buried the 12-year-old boy and then celebrated by his grave, getting sick on wine and whiskey that they had brought with them. Over the next two months, Myra and Ian returned twice more to visit Pauline and John's graves and take photographs over them. One of these photos shows Myra squatting over John's grave with her beloved puppy, who she called Puppet. And all the while, Manchester police had two missing children's cases on their books that were quickly becoming cold cases. By early 1964, there were simply not enough connections between Pauline and John's disappearances to link them, and too few clues otherwise to solve either case. That would all change a few short months later. For a few months, just visiting the graves of his victims seemed to sate Ian's bloodlust. Serial killers are often categorized by cool-down periods between their kills. However, by June of 1964, Ian's urge to kill had returned with a vengeance. This time, they targeted the Manchester neighborhood of Longsight. On June 16, 1964, Ian spotted 12-year-old Keith Bennett walking down a sidewalk alone. Keith had only just left his parents' home and was walking a few blocks to visit his grandmother when Myra drove up beside him and offered him a lift. Once again, Ian and Myra drove their victim to Saddleworth Moor, where Ian sexually assaulted and tortured Keith before strangling him. Then they rolled Keith into a grave. Before burying him, Ian took a Polaroid photograph of his body. 
Research by Rhodes University suggests that serial killers take trophies or souvenirs from their murders for several reasons. First, it allows them to relive or fantasize about the crime during their cool-down periods. Second, the pieces or photos allow these killers to remain in control of those they have dominated while away from them. For Ian, these photographs were mementos to help him relive his crimes. For Myra, they were tools she could use to keep Ian with her and to remind him of what they were capable of together. In the days and weeks after Keith went missing, police searched for evidence that Keith's stepfather had done something to him, even going so far as to rip up his garden and the floorboards in his house looking for Keith's body. It's common in missing children's cases to look towards parents and step-parents as the most likely culprits, as they're around the children every day. Even though the police would interrogate Keith's stepfather another three times over the next couple of years, they also expanded their investigation throughout Manchester. Policemen literally went door to door to interview neighbors about their whereabouts. If someone was unavailable at the time, they would return later when they were home. The house calls began to consume enormous amounts of the officers' work hours and private time, but they had strong motivation to discover what had happened to Keith Bennett. Detectives with the Manchester Police Department had begun to suspect that John Kilbride and Keith Bennett's disappearances were linked and that there might be a serial killer loose in Manchester. Even though crime rates at that time in Manchester were very high, children almost never went missing. To have two 12-year-old boys disappear only six months apart? The detectives reasoned their cases must share a common link. If the increased scrutiny bothered Ian and Myra, they never seemed to show it. Their lives in the months after Keith's murder were domestic and simple. Ian and Myra went to work, and they reconnected with friends. After Myra's 22nd birthday on July 23, 1964, Myra and Ian spent more and more time with Myra's younger sister, Maureen, and her new husband, David Smith. David had a lot of baggage. He was quasi-infamous in Manchester for once stabbing a boy during a school fight and for once punching his school headmaster in the face. Myra's parents had objected to Maureen and David's marriage from the beginning. Myra and Ian, on the other hand, liked David immediately. And David admired Ian. Ian was 10 years older, more worldly, and seemed to have his life together. He had a stable job, still working at the same chemical distribution office as Myra. He did whatever he wanted, and Myra was enamored with him no matter what. Ian brought David under his wing, much in the same way he did with Myra. He gave David the same Nazi texts and Marquis de Sade novels he had given to Myra to read. He told David about his plans to rob a bank, almost as if he was testing David's loyalty, the way he had tested Myra. He also taught David how to shoot a gun. Myra, Ian, Maureen, and David would routinely picnic together in Saddleworth Moors, near and sometimes right on top of the places where Ian and Myra had buried their victims. At some time in late 1964, Myra's grandmother, who Myra and David were still living with, had to move to another government-subsidized house, in the nearby neighborhood of Hattersley. Myra and Ian moved with her, and shortly after they were all settled in, Ian told Myra it was time to kill again. No doubt emboldened by the fact that they had never even been suspected of their previous crimes, 
Ian and Myra decided that they would do things differently this time. They would snatch someone the day after Christmas, and instead of going to Saddleworth Moor, they would bring their victim to their own home. On December 26, 1964, Myra drove her grandmother to stay with relatives overnight. Ian stayed behind and set up a video camera and professional photography lights in their bedroom. He also set up Myra's gift to him that Christmas, a state-of-the-art tape recorder, under their bed. After sunset, Myra and Ian drove to a small children's carnival. Ten-year-old Leslie Ann Downey wandered the carnival alone. She had been dropped off by her older brother who had wanted to hang out alone with his friends. It was a decision that would haunt her brother for the rest of his life. Ian spotted Leslie Ann wandering on her own. She had bows in her wavy brown hair and wore a plaid dress she had received for Christmas. He pointed her out to Myra, then raced home on his motorbike to prepare. As Myra walked by Leslie Ann, she dropped a bag of knickknacks. In her best babysitter's voice, Myra asked Leslie Ann to help her pick it up and carry it to the car with her. Then she offered Leslie Ann a ride home. The little girl didn't notice how quickly the doors locked around her as she got into Myra's car. Once Myra parked in front of her own home, she coaxed Leslie Ann inside with her. Ian was waiting with gag in hand. They bound Leslie Ann to their bed and stripped her. While Ian guided Myra in taking naked photos of the little girl, he turned on the tape recorder under the bed. The 16-minute-long tape recording of what happened to Leslie Ann in that room sizzles with grotesqueness. As Leslie Ann called out for her mother and father and begged for Myra to let her go, they raped and tortured her relentlessly. At one point, Leslie Ann can be heard saying, quote, Please, God, help me. I want to see my mummy. End quote. Myra can be heard snapping at her to shut up and threatening to hit Leslie Ann if she didn't. The decision to bring their victim to their own home and to record her suffering is an example of what serial killer investigators call escalation. Myra and Ian forewent their normal pattern of taking their victim to the moor in favor of taking their victim home, where they were more likely to be discovered. It's like robbing a bank at night when no one is there versus robbing a crowded bank in broad daylight the increased risk can up the thrill of the crime. Some serial killers escalate their crimes when they feel they've gotten away with it for too long. Research by East Illinois University has found that escalation often happens because the excitement of the original experience dims over time. The novelty wears off. Each successive murder is less new and exciting than the last, especially when the risk of getting caught seems to have diminished. It's similar to drug addiction. After a while, a little bit doesn't cut it anymore. Serial killers require more risk and more brutality to make them feel the same way. After Myra and Ian finished raping Leslie Ann, they turned off the tape recorder and one or both of them strangled Leslie Ann to death. They washed her body, tossed her and her clothes into a sheet and cleaned up the scene. Then they drove her to their graveyard in the moor and buried her. As a final memento, they took pictures of each other standing over Leslie Ann's grave. In the wake of Leslie Ann's disappearance, special task forces were assembled by Manchester PD to comb the fairgrounds for clues and to go door to door asking questions, as they had after Keith Bennett's disappearance. But once again, there just weren't enough breadcrumbs to follow. 
it seemed Leslie Ann had simply vanished. Slowly but surely, she became another cold case. But something seems to have happened in the months following Ian and Myra's brutal attack on Leslie Ann. Ian became overcome with a pervasive existential dread. He was bored. As he later said, he felt at age 26 that he had accomplished everything he had set out to do. Raping and killing had somehow become pedestrian to him. One 1985 study by John Liebert, a psychiatrist known for his research on serial killers like the Green River Killer, found that over time, the self-image of these killers weakens, eventually giving way to despair and self-hatred that can affect their ability to kill again or quench their thirst for violence entirely. If Ian had been left to his own devices at this point, he may never have killed again. Myra, however, wasn't content to let Ian fade away from her. If Ian needed to escalate his violence to bring his passion back, so be it. She was willing to lure as many children as it took to keep their spark alive. Soon, Myra and Ian's star-crossed romance would steal the life of another teenager. And this time, they would welcome an audience into their home to watch them kill. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll take a look at the murder that led to Myra Hindley and Ian Brady's downfall. We'll also look at how the twisted and sordid tale of these murderers continued for decades after their capture. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Vanessa Richardson and Sammy Nye.